0: So good morning to you. We are um, we well, are coming to, to the conclusion of our four-week study of the book of Ruth. We've been taking it on a chapter a week, and the fourth chapter is the last one. And I think what we'll find as we read chapter four is uh, are just some beautiful resolutions. Um, most uh, people I studied when looking at this book noted that Ruth is really an idyllic tale. It's a it can feel like a fairy tale. Um, uh, one, one study called it the Cinderella story of the Old Testament. Um, and if you're like me, you can look at fairy tales and appreciate them. Uh, you can enjoy them. Uh, but there can be a, a measure of cynicism as far as how well they might apply to our daily lives. Uh, because even a modicum of experience, life experience tells you that very rarely do our lives Find the kind of beautiful resolutions that we see uh, packaged in a fairy tale with a little bow on top. But let me ask you, just for the next few minutes, to resist any impulse for cynicism that you might have. Let me just ask you to dare to hope uh, in the story that we might see, because um, as we look at the beautiful resolutions in Ruth, what we'll see in each of these is, uh, is an even more beautiful resolution that God is pointing us to, that he is indeed at work in these stories, and he's authoring a grander story that any of these, that's even grander than any of these characters could have imagined for themselves. We'll pick up where we left off last week, where Naomi and Ruth... Uh, where Naomi and Ruth are, are together waiting alongside each other for Boaz to, to pursue the marriage that he had promised to Ruth. This is, uh, this is chapter 4. I'll begin in verse 1 and read to the end of the chapter. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here, And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if... If you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it. And I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Also, Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Milan. I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming to, into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. These are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Uh, What a story you have written. And what a story you are writing. I pray, Lord, as, as we look at this passage, that we will hear the testimonies of what you are up to in the lives of these people and in the history of the world that we might find comfort as we consider our own stories. And will you help me, your servant, to love these friends well? Will you help me to be clear and helpful? Uh, help me to rejoice in what you are doing And to honor you with these words that I say. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so one of the most fascinating stories I've ever heard of. uh, Began in 1938 at Harvard University. And it is still going, uh, if you can believe it. Generations of researchers have kind of picked up the baton of this research project. And continue to move it forward. And uh, several hundred men served as study candidates. In this uh, in in this study, it's probably it's got to be one of the largest longitudinal longitudinal. Stu- that's a harder word than some of the names in this passage. Longitudinal uh, study that's ever been attempted. Uh, what were they studying? Well, they called it the uh, Harvard Study of uh, Adult Development, and what they did was they tracked the lives of each one of these people who uh, who were being studied. And uh, th- to put it simply, what they were trying to do was find the primary contributors to overall health and overall happiness. And so they, you know, they looked at the, the lives that these young uh, men led over the course of their lives, and some of them were quite exceptional lives. Even one of the presidents of the United States was was a part of, uh, was a part of this study, some of those lives were short lives and many of them were just very kind of normal lives and they looked at the ways different factors contributed to the health and happiness of each of these candidates. So they looked at the impact that a marriage can have on the life. They looked at the impact of happy marriages and unhappy marriages. They looked at the impact of money and how uh, or lack thereof and, and the impact that that can have on lives. They looked at the impact of of relationships, of families and all these things that matter to us that we're looking at and trying to analyze how did that contribute or detract from the happiness and the health of a life? And it's interesting to me because I, I think in a lot of ways, um, the, the questions that they were seeking to answer are questions that resonate deeply in our hearts a lot of the time. In fact, many of the decisions we make. Uh, from the words that we use to the people that we hang out with from the way that we spend our time and our money are actually seeking to find answers to the same questions they were asking as they looked at the study and as I remember the beginning of the book of Ruth I think Ruth in a lot of or sorry I think Naomi in a lot of ways was seeking things uh, I don't think there's a lick of difference between what Naomi was looking for and the things that we seek every day like, they, they traveled to Moab, and what were they seeking? They were seeking sustenance. Well, we seek sustenance. And she was seeking security, and, and, uh, and we we're seeking security all the time. And she was seeking a purpose, and we desire purpose. And so the question I want to ask is, what would Naomi say In answering these deep questions that study was asking and and that we're asking too. How would Naomi answer those questions? If we did a longitudinal study of Naomi, what would she have to say to the researchers? I'd like to imagine, take it a step further. I'd like to imagine what it might look like if we had the chance to sit on the front porch with Naomi here at the end of the story. And she's got a baby uh, boy her grandchild sitting on her lap, and she's wizened with age and some wear and tear through her life, how would she answer these questions in a conversation like that? Well, I bet she would have a lot to say at the end of this story, wouldn't she? She might have things to say we might not be able to understand yet. But I'd like to imagine that she would sip sweet tea and think deeply and she would say something to us like, pay close attention to the story that God is writing and embrace the privilege to be a part of it. Over the last several weeks, we've looked at this story and we've, we've analyzed each one of these characters, haven't we? We kind of come at it from a few different angles and, and that's good. Uh, that's good to do. We make some notes and see what we can learn from it. What is it telling us? How does it instruct us? But it can be easy to look at each one of these characters and miss the forest through the trees because in the book of Ruth, there is a primary character who was at work before this story started, who was the primary agent of everything that happened in this book and and is the primary worker of things going after this book. And he is authoring a grand story of redemption. Ruth, and indeed the whole Bible, is teaching us that God is actually the primary mover and shaker of this world. And he is constructing an amazing story of redemption. So what I want to do is kind of at the end here, I want to take a step back and tap the brake pedal just a little bit. And I want to trace three different storylines of redemption that I see here in this book. There are several, but I'm just going to talk about three. The first is that we see an arc of redemption that moves from disorder to order. And then I think we see a storyline of redemption that moves from death to life. And then we see God authoring a storyline of redemption that moves from emptiness to fullness. That's what I'm going to talk about. First, uh, the movement from disorder to order. Uh, We look at the beginning of the story and it began in a place of great disorder, in fact, verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1 says that this sit, kind of sets this story within the time when the judges ruled, is what it said. Now, when you look at the book of Judges, that was a time of great disorder for God's people. In fact, there's a summary statement right at the end of that book that says that that, that characterizes the way of life within Israel was that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now that, uh, and I've said it before, but that is a picture of chaos. That's, that's great disorder for everyone to simply move in, in the direction of their own self-interest. But we also see disorder in the, in the lives of, of, uh, of Naomi and her family because what are they doing? They're getting up and they're moving someplace. Uh, in, our, in our world, we can understand that a little easier than I think we can in this world. Uh, we're a m- much more mobile society. We kind of can get up and move for all kinds of reasons. But even then, in a place, in a world where we're very accustomed to, to that kind of mobility, even then we can feel the disruption to order when we do things like that. It can take a long time to settle into a new place. But in a tribal agrarian world, like the one that Naomi is, when a family moves, that's, that's really disruptive. And so th- this whole story begins with a picture of just deep disorder going on in the world and in the families that, w- that we're looking at. But here at the end of the story, what we see is a picture of a new order being established. Like Naomi and Ruth, who were bereft of family, are now being absorbed into a family and they're finding a new life and a new order and a real place in this family. It's a lovely thing to see. There's, a, there's, a, there's an orderliness being given to them. And we also see it in the picture of how justice is carried out, right, in the first part of this chapter. I mean, did you see the details in how Boaz kind of arranged a court at the gate? When you went to the town gate, that was where the town court was. And that was where people hung out. And you could find elders there. And so he goes and he arranges the elders of the town as witnesses. He speaks to the other man and they go back and forth. There is uh, every bit of clarity in the carrying out of those dealings all the way down. And it's recorded in order all the way down to when they exchange a sandal. Which would, all of that was meant, all of that was outlined to explain to us the orderly dealings uh, that were given in, uh, in this passage. It was, all, it was all meant to achieve a kind of legal clarity, and it was carried out with a great sense of order. It was enough, it was enough order to please the heart of any Presbyterian. That was a Presbytery joke, I suppose. <laughs> and I want you to see this because I think in a lot of ways we crave order. Like we love order in our lives, don't we? In fact, when, we, when things feel like they're out of order, we feel lost in some way. And we feel that in small ways and in big ways. Like in small ways, we I mean, many of us can just geek out uh, when we look at an organized closet or an organized garage. There's something like really reassuring about that to us. But in big ways, when we see disorder being carried out in our world with authorities, it can be really deeply troubling to us. Like when we see a miscarriage of justice or when we hear about something going wrong, or when a leader lies to us, we can feel like the world is out of order in some really important ways. It can be really troubling. But when we read the Bible, what we see is that God is a God who brings great disorder into order. And you see this all over the place. In fact, God's first creative act was, was, a, was a way of bringing order in, a disorder into order because the story begins with the Holy Spirit hovering over chaotic waters. And then he begins arranging things and building things and establishing a new life. He creates land and he creates animals and he creates a cycle of uh, of night and day. And he arranges an orderly life there in the Garden of Eden. And then when you see in Genesis chapter 3, with the fall... It's so destructive to us because the order that God has established has been knocked out of order. And then what we see is God immediately begins to bring things back into order again. And he arranges his people. And he gives them a law. And he sends his son. And he is immediately at work trying to bring things back into order again. And so when we look at our world... In some ways, as we try to arrange it into something that we can understand, into something that we can love, we are actually looking to participate with God's promised work of bringing the world back into order again. It's, it's incredibly wonderful. And we can trust that God, who loves his creation far more than we may ever be able to muster, is deeply concerned about the disorders of the world and promises us one day that he will bring it back into bring it back into order as he established it in the first place. But there's something missing to that, right? Because if God is going to reorder the world, in a lot of ways, he's got to reorder us. Because we are out of order much of the time, aren't we? Like I love things that are bad for me, and I hate things that are good for me. Paul says, why do I do the things I don't want to do? right? That's a, that's a lack of order. That's chaos of the spirit. And one of the confessions we made in the confession of sin, I underlined it real quick because it was so perfect. Our, uh, the confession of sin is, is, an, is a request that Jesus might reorder us. He, we said, set us free from a past that we cannot change. Open to us a future in w- which we can be changed and grant us grace to grow more and more into the likeness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are asking, we are asking that the Holy Spirit would work in us in such a way that we would be rearranged to better reflect who Jesus is, that we would grow more and more into his likeness and image. That is a reordering of who we are. And that's God's promise to you and to me. One of the sweet gospel promises is that he is so committed to to us that he won't leave us as we are, but he reorders us and the world. That's the promise. That's the first promise, is that the trajectory of redemption that God is authoring is a movement from disorder to order. We also see in this passage a movement from death to life, because the story of Ruth began with great deaths, didn't it? Chapter 1, verse 3, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. And then two verses later, Naomi's two sons, one of which was Ruth's husband, also die. And the story is also set within the context of famines. Famines happening in Moab, famines happening in the homeland in Bethlehem. And in this world, famines mean death. And so the story moves with death. But as we land in chapter four, what we see is life, don't we? I mean, a new life is given to Ruth and Naomi. They have a means to live, but we also see the new life and the birth of a baby boy, Obed. And we see that new life leads to more new life. We see these genealogies that are, that are here, that Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David, and David was the king that will restore order to Jerusalem. And then we can trace that family line past David, and it leads us all the way down to another baby who will be born in Bethlehem. And he will be the king, the father of all, he will be the king of all the nations. It's a picture of, of we see new life here pointing to the grand promise that God is authoring to bring new life into the world. That's what we see. It's this movement from death to life. And this is important to us because in so many ways, the normative trajectory of life that we understand is that life goes to death, Right? And we could sit here and outline all the ways that the reality of death presses in on us, right? Especially in a time like this, in a pandemic like the one that we've been surviving. And in many ways, we can look all around the world and we can just see the reality of death pressing in on us. And it can be discouraging. Because we think that often the trajectory that we see is a a movement from, from life to death. But what we see in the Bible is a movement from death to life. That's what God promises. God actually actually authors this trajectory from death to life because he calls death his enemy. He says that death is not what we were created for. And the Bible couldn't be more clear about this. When we see the curse enter the world in Genesis chapter 3, there is a reason that in Genesis chapter 4 we suddenly see one brother killing another brother. Death is this foreign invader in the world that you and I were not meant for, that the people we love aren't meant for. And so as he goes about his work of redemption, God... Enters scenes of death and brings new life. And I think nowhere is this more evident than when we look at who Jesus is. Because Jesus was the God man. Jesus was the God man who embraced death for himself to bring life everlasting to the people that have faith in him. And he is authoring a new trajectory of death to life, to life everlasting. Because he beat death. And then he promised resurrection to those that he loves. And the Bible concludes with this promise in Revelation 21. This is the promise that he will one day wipe away every tear from their eyes. And what? And death shall be no more. And there will be no more mourning. And there will be no more tears. For the former things have passed away. Listen, there is going to come a time when you and I will be able to look at each other and we will be able to talk about how death was normal. Because we are being promised a time when death will be no more. That he who breathes life into dry bones will one day breathe life into your bones. For all who have faith, In Jesus Christ, the promise before you is complete, renewed, life everlasting. And to paraphrase Paul, not even death can separate us from the love story of redemption that God is authoring, because that's what he's doing. And moving us from death to life, he's authoring a story of redemption. And if that wasn't enough we also see him authoring a story of redemption that moves from emptiness to fullness. And I see emptiness in chapter one because there's a scene where Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem and the town's women surround them. And of course, they're looking for stories of what the last 10 years that they've been apart look like. And and Naomi says to them, I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty that she felt empty without purpose. She felt empty without life. She felt empty without family. She really felt empty with no joy in her life was what she was describing. But in the end of this story, what we see is that these townswomen are surrounding Naomi again. And what are they doing? They are celebrating the fullness that has been brought into, into Naomi's life because i can't think of anything that that is more able to fill naomi's heart this is a woman who cannot give birth anymore this is a woman who's lost her husband and her two boys and the fullness that's brought is a is a baby is a grandbaby boy laid in her lap and she has a renewed purpose to be this boy's nurse to nurse him in his young age that is an incredible gift and when these towns women gather around them, what are they celebrating? It says, "Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you without a redeemer." They are celebrating the story that God is writing in Naomi's life. And listen, when we talk about fullness, what are we talking about? I think we're talking about joy. We are talking about the promise. Of joy that's been given to Naomi, that she is able to live out of a place of joy. And as we look at Naomi, I think what we see here is that God's attention has been given toward bringing her to a place of joy, that God cares about her joy. And you know, it's not lost on me that Naomi's path included suffering, right? That it included loss and great difficulty, that she was even angry with God at times. She doubted God's good intentions. She even accused God, right? But nowhere do we actually see Naomi walk away from her faith. She didn't doubt God existed, she doubted if God really cared for her. She doubted if God wanted her to to be happy. She doubted if God cared about her joy, and you know I think that's where we find ourselves much of the time. I, I think it's really easy for us um, to to look at our lives, and we understand the depths of our lives often better than other people, and to see what's missing and to wonder if God actually cares about our joy. I think that's a, that, that is where we find ourselves much of the time. Would it surprise you to hear that God cares about your joy even as much as he cares about Naomi's joy? This is something we need to hear, especially during seasons of suffering, seasons of loss, seasons of great difficulty. That God is promising you a time when you will only know joy. Shortly before Jesus went to the cross, he gathered his disciples, whom he loved very, very much, up in a room, and he began giving them some parting words. And he said this you can find it in John 15. He says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That's what Jesus wants for you. That he gives himself, he gives everything he has to offer and even embraces humiliation and death so that your joy might be full. And this joy is only found in one place, right? That it's found in Christ. And I think that the, the wealth of research that ca- came out of that study uh, at Harvard is going to bear a lot of fruit for a lot of years. I, I, I just think it's awesome. And if you want to know more about it, I can send you some links. Just let me know. There's an incredible TED Talk That was given in 2015 by the then director of this project. And you know what he said? He kind of summed up the results. What he said was that the clearest message that we get from this study looking for health and happiness is this one. He said, good relationships keep us happier and healthier, period, is what he said. And I can imagine that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in perfect relationship with each other, enjoying each other, would nod and say, yes, that is one of the ways that we created you for relationships and and that you would find joy in relationships. But what Jesus says is that joy is found in this relationship. The relationship you have with him is the key to your joy. Amen. Let me pray. O you who gave of yourself, O you who writes the story of the world, O you who made promises, and O you who hold us in your hand, I pray that you would help us to see what you are up to in our lives and in this place, in Birmingham and in the world. I pray that you would give us the, an, an even greater capacity to trust that you are indeed at work, always at work, on behalf of the people that you love. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.